Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. So I call my dad and he's in Seattle doing pro coverage because at the time he was a pro, pro scout. I said, dad, I'm going to the theory. He's like, what? No, you're not. Welcome into another episode of Baseball America's interview series from Phenom to the Farm, where we're talking to former professional baseball players to reminisce about their playing days and what they learned on their journey from amateur ball to the professional ranks. I'm your host, Kyle Bandujo. Today's episode, we are talking to former big league right-hander Chucky Fick, a guy with a lot of personality who I followed on Twitter for a while, was very glad he agreed to come on the show. Very entertaining episode, very enjoyable conversation. Uh, we talk about his baseball bloodlines, he's the son of a longtime scout, uncle of a big league all-star, neither of whom ever forced baseball on him. Chucky coaches youth baseball players now, and we kind of got to talk about the importance of having multiple sports or just multiple interests uh, as, as you grow up in baseball. Uh, we talk about his college ball days, he transferred as a freshman out of Fresno State, then he had a very down junior year heading into the draft. He still got taken by the Cardinals organization and is pretty open about how allegations of, of nepotism bothered him. His dad was a scout for the Cardinals, and um, the, those allegations are something that he uses kind of a chip on his shoulders. He began his climb up the ladder. Chucky's really good in this one of talking about how adjustments going up the ladder, how you become a better pitcher you know, in other ways than just picking up velo or improved stuff. Uh, he also drops a whopper of a surprise during the rapid fire. Tune into that one. Stay stay tuned for this whole episode. It, it'll it, it'll shock you. Yeah, I'm I'm sure of that if you've listened to this this show for a while. Uh, but episodes are from Phenom to the Farm. Drop every other Tuesday. So if you enjoyed this one, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Go check out past interviews. We've got almost 40 now. And if you haven't yet, please leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Maybe shout out a player you'd like to hear on the podcast. I will see if if I can track them down. We got a shout out and a review uh, between the last two episodes, and I am I'm trying to track that player down now. It is it is a little difficult sometimes, but uh, those reviews are always appreciated. They do help the podcast. Also, make sure you subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com for all amateur baseball and prospect news. We've got all the post-draft coverage in, prospect hot sheets coming out every week, MILB coverage, just had the Futures game, a lot of great stuff on BA right now. Make sure you're tuning in, and you know college coverage is still going as well. Always a good time to be subscribed to BaseballAmerica.com, as well as subscribe to the Baseball America podcast feed and Future Projection, Ben Badler, Carlos Colazzo. They do a great job over there. Uh, BA team always doing a bang up coverage of, of all your amateur baseball and prospect news. So subscribe to baseballamerica.com. And with that, let's talk to Chucky Fick. All right. Joining in for today's episode from Phenom to the farm. He was a 15th round pick of the Cardinals in 2007 out of Cal State Northridge right-hander Chucky Fick. Chucky, thanks so much for joining for Phenom to the farm. Thanks, Cal. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, let's dive right in. Uh, you grew up, you're the son of a scout, cousin of a big leaguer. Were you one of those kids that had a glove in your crib and was trying to play baseball from the moment you could walk? Yes and no. And so we were always given, my brother and I, the option to really do whatever we wanted. Um, 
you know, my dad being, you know, baseball pretty much all the time. And my, and it was, my, it's my uncle that played in the big leagues. And, oh, my mistake. Yeah. My mistake. No, it's, it's okay. It Robert happens all Finn, the time. Right. Yeah. So it's my dad's youngest brother. And so, yeah, we were, and we were obviously grew up in a baseball family, but like my dad was very cool with it. Like we rode skateboards, we rode bikes, you know, we'd go camping at the beach and I, I'm a big surfer. And so we always were given the options to do whatever we wanted. And I played baseball, basketball, soccer, all the way through going into high school. My brother played football and, ba- and baseball. And so I never really did it baseball all year round. So it was a nice mix for me. And so there was never any pressure to be, you know, that base, that kind of player, I guess, growing up, which was great. People always assume that my dad was going to be very hard on us. And it was quite the opposite. And you coach kids now, and we'll get into how your career and experience has shaped how you coach kids. But just on that specific topic, like you live there, there are a couple states where you can play baseball year round if you want to. I live in one in Texas, you live in California. Is it sounds like that's not how you went about things, though you did a lot of different things. You with the kids you coach now, what do you relay about specialization? And you know, there's a lot of you know, should I pick one sport going around? We have a handful of kids. Uh, you know, we, we operate in the summer and the fall. Uh, we have a handful of kids that, that do play other sports, and I encourage it. And all the ones that do play other sports, like one of them is going to be the, the quarterback at Moore Park High School this year, and he's committed to USC as a left-handed pitcher. And uh, I think it saves bullets, and I think you're able to, to refine your other motor skills when it comes to doing certain things. And so I, I you know, I would love to have some, you know, another arm like his year-round, but I don't pressure kids into it all. And, and the majority of our pitchers, they're on pretty much a hundred inning limit. If you're 16, 17, 18 years old, about a hundred inning limit over the course of a 12 month period. So they pitch the, for their high school team. They pitch in the summer, about 25 innings. They pitch about 20, 25 innings in the, in this fall. And then we shut them down for eight to 10 weeks. And I provide them a throwing program to build them back up and be ready to go for the next calendar year. Um, so we, we shut down typically about mid mid October and kids are able to get that time off because the majority of kids that play for us, they are already pretty established on the varsity team. So they don't really need to play in, in winter ball per se for their high school team. And with your experience, especially as you get into high school, what are kind of the pros and cons with having a dad who's a scout, a dad in the game, an uncle who's probably, I, I think, made an all-star team right around mm-hmm. as you're getting into high school? What are, you know, how do you weigh the pros and cons? What are there expectations that come with that? And then I, I assume there are also some benefits of having that much baseball knowledge around when you're trying to make baseball your thing. It's, it's nice because we all kind of see players in a different light from one, one way or the other. He's obviously very, very old school, but he's, he works for a very uh, forward thinking organization. So he's had to adapt himself and, and we have, we have some nice heated conversations about certain things and, you know, he's learned some things from me and I've learned some things from him. And, and then Robert, obviously being the hitter, like we'll send a lot of video to him just saying, Hey, you know, this kid's been struggling. What do you got on the swing? This and that. And he's really good friends with Demetri Young and, and Marlon Bird lives in this area as well too. And so we have some reference points that if kids are going good or going bad to, to help support them through whatever process they're going, going through the time. And how much of that was on you in high school though? Were they, was it uh, was it kind of a hands off thing? Come to me if you want help, or were you know with, with that much baseball knowledge, it's kind of close access. How did you approach that? It was very hands off. Um, I, I always threw a lot of strikes as a kid, and pretty much all the way through the majority of my of my professional careers as well too. And so you know, kind of don't fix what's not broken. Um, and really, what was hammered to me is like, hey, you're six four, one hundred sixty pounds these guys are six, four, two twenty. Like you need to get bigger and stronger to be able to handle 
a, a full season workload and, and, you know, you can't make the club in the tub that he'd always tell me. He said, so that's what, that's what he hammered home to me. It wasn't about baseball per se, but just getting bigger and, and bettering my, my physicality, I guess. And then when did college interest start to materialize? When did, when did you actually know that you wanted to play college baseball? I, that was always, that was always plan one, a um, plan one B was always to try and be a scout afterwards. But realistically in, in 2003 and 2004, when that I kind of started entering that phase of my life, no one really committed early. You know, the majority of, of the kids in my recruiting class, we all got together on September one and we got recruited between September one and, and November 15th or so. And that's really when that two and a half month process started and finished. Um, I think there might've been one kid that was committed to a division one school prior to my dad's first year starting the scout team in, in the, I guess it was the fall of 2003. So things have obviously drastically changed in that, in that time. But, um, you know, I was six, four, 155, 60 pounds at the time. You know, I best bolt I ever show you was 85, 86, but I could go out there and throw a lot of strikes. And so there was some interest, not a ton. And I wasn't the best student in the world. So I kind of uh, eliminated some options that I would have liked to have had. Um, and he, my dad was hard on me about that part, but, um, that, that's kind of how things happen for me and, and they all happen quickly. Now things happen quicker, but you know, when kids are 14, 15 years old, sometimes now, yeah, things happen quicker and, and much earlier. So with yes. that two and a half month process though, who kind of came to the table and how do you, you know, at, at 17, 18, how did you make that decision as far as where you, you know, where you decided to at least enroll for your freshman year? My decision, um, I was offered a, a few different opportunities. One just wasn't a good fit for me. The other one financially wasn't a good, for my, good fit for my family. And then where I ended up choosing was Fresno State. And my uncle Robert had been an All-American for, for Mike Batesel at Cal State Northridge. My dad had a long relationship with him. So it was kind of a, a, a prearranged marriage to some degree. And, and I went up there and there was several kids in that recruiting class that were local to me and playing on my current team. And we all kind of decided like, hey, you know, like, we're all going to go up there together and have a good time. And um, it didn't seem, it didn't work out in the end. It did for them because those that stayed all four years, they, that, that senior year, the 2018 was the one that won the national championship. So I left after my freshman year, I, I transferred to Cal state Northridge um, just because I saw a better opportunity for myself and just a better fit for me. And, you know, things always work out in the end for, for myself and others as well too. So no hard, no harm, no foul on, on either side. You had mentioned earlier that you're, you know, six four, six five, listed at listed at one eighty when you got to Fresno State. Were you as some I I played at a small college and I would spend every August I remember begging, you know, for an extra two inches or you know, <laughs> ten pounds on the website. Were you an actual one eighty or when Not you got to close. college did they make you, you know, live in the cafeteria in the weight room? I, I was probably one sixty five. Um yeah, I don't know how 180 came about. And then I think when I was drafted, I was listed at 187, which I don't know how that that ever came about. I, I kind of operate in the fives and zeros. And I and the kids nowadays, too, I'm like, oh, how, how big are you? And they say, oh, I'm 5'11", 155. I'm like, okay, you're, you're six foot 160 then. So I don't know where 187 came from on my on my draft card. Whatever looks better, man. Whatever, exactly. whatever looks better. So Shiny round numbers. You walk into, so you, you have your freshman year at Fresno State, you pitch a little bit, you decide to move on. You walk into Northridge as a transfer. Sometimes, mm. at least in my experience, sometimes guys from junior college or transfers kind of struggle to adapt because there's a lot of, oh, my old school, we did this and that. Um, a lot of that more has to do with, I would say, with a lot of junior college guys, in my experience, came in and said, oh, well, at this junior college, we were doing this and we were awesome. 
it might not have been the same for you since you you went to Fresno. You weren't maybe quite as happy with it or happy with the opportunity. How does the transition work for you as you came in to, to try to assimilate yourself to a new program after seeing how a program on the same level operated? There was a handful of us that, that transferred in and, and my roommate had transferred in from UCLA and, and me being only about 35 minutes from Cal State Northridge. Um, and then who the guy who ended up being my roommate at Fresno State, he was the best man at my wedding. He was out playing summer ball in Hawaii with several of the guys that were ended up being my teammates at Cal State Northridge too. So we all kind of operated in this weird triangle of, you know, I was playing summer ball with Bobby Pascal, who had transferred in from USC to Cal State Northridge. I met Bobby. Bobby said, hey, come to Northridge. And then my friend Mike was playing out in, in Hawaii with Craig Baker, who ended up being a fourth rounder for the Rockies. And Joe Rocky was a 10th rounder for the Phillies. So he met those guys. And then I was friends with Mike. I was friends with Bobby. And so we all, and still to this day, we're all friends too. And so it's a very, very small world how we all came about, to be honest. And Chris Kasarjan, same thing. We're, we're all friends. And you grew up 35 minutes away from the school? Yeah. So in your two years there, how many times did you go home to, to get laundry done or get like a meal cooked? Uh, laundry a lot. Meal, not so much. I, I think I'm a pretty good cook, but I'm, I'm terrible at laundry. So uh, mom and dad, specifically mom, took care of me on the laundry side. Uh, especially in the fall, I'd, I'd get up in Sunday morning, I'd drop off my laundry, go surfing for the day, just kind of clear my head because, you know, we only had Sundays off for the most part um, and come back from the beach, pick up my laundry, give, give everyone a hug and a kiss. And I was on my way back, back to work. Got to, got to get the laundry. I found that when during my junior and senior years of high school, I was expected to fend for myself a little bit more <laughs> with that stuff. But then when I would return in college, I was treated like a king. So very, very different once you leave the nest. But you get into that sophomore year at Northridge and you've gone from a guy who was was struggling to find, you know, find some innings at Fresno. At Northridge, you're, when did you realize that you were going to be a rotation mainstay? How did that kind of come about? That all started the summer before. Um, and I have to give, and I hope they hear this somehow, some way. Matt Hobbs, who's the pitching coach at the University of Arkansas, um, that man changed my life. I, I had him as a summer ball coach and he taught me what hard work and, and being gritty and just showing up every day to, to really put in the work. He taught me that. Um, and I see him maybe once a year. Or so I give him a big hug and I tell him every time, like, thank you so much. You changed my life. And then once I got to Northridge, um, I knew in the fall, I was kind of told like, Hey, there's, there's a path for you to, to be a weekend guy, as long as you prove yourself. And uh, Mark Curtanian, who's now with the Dodgers organization uh, as a manager, I think he's in low A or high A. He made it his personal, I don't, I don't even know if you want to call it path or vendetta against me, but he rode me very, very hard. And uh, he's someone I, I have to give credit to as well, too. He, he helped change my life. Um, you know, once we got into the season, I was pitching on whether it be Friday, Saturday or Sunday afternoon. You know, he met me at the field the next day at 9 a.m. and on the right field line to start running and doing lunges and, and the work afterwards. So every time I see him, I give him a big hug and tell him that he was someone that definitely helped shape me into the player I became eventually. You talk putting in the work and putting in the work is important, but I assume that it means putting in the right work. What was that for you? What what turned you from a guy who was pitching a little bit at Fresno to a starter? What kind of work did you have to put in to become a guy who could you know start 15 games at the Division One level? Just in the weight room. And, and I was always referred to as a, a term thin-wristed. Like I'm just built slender. I was, I'm not a physically strong person naturally. So I, I had to, to make sure that my base, my legs, my core was, was as good as I could make it at that time. And, and Coach Gertanian in the fall of, of that sophomore year 
he he ran our weight room. Cal State Northridge is not a place at the time that we had a, a big budget for you know a strength and conditioning coach or a good weight room in general. So he made it work. And again, I I can't give that man enough credit because he at the time I don't know he was an asshole. And I, and in hindsight, looking back, without him being the way he was to me and, and some other people, we wouldn't have been as good as we we became. So you get you get through that sophomore year, you start fifteen. Yeah, you, you know you have a solid year. You're a mainstay at Cal State Northridge. When you finish up that year, you obviously you have a dad who does you know who scouts for a living. Did you you know run it by him like, hey, what kind of you know you're going into junior year? Like, hey, what kind of prospect am I? Like, what do I look like at the next level? I've always been pretty objective about myself, and and. He always made a joke to me. He's like, you know, if you pitch at 90 miles an hour, you got a chance. To, you got a chance to make it. And I was more probably, you know, 87 to touching 90, 91 on most occasions. But I could really sink and slide it. Um, so at, at the end of the year, he's like, you know, you 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 had a good year, and, and hopefully you build on that and continue to get better. And you know, let's see what next year comes about. Um, he he was never someone to put a, a number or around because that's not how he is. He he's because that would just add more pressure to, to me and my mom and my dad and everyone. Like I always operated when I had my last name on my back, I didn't just didn't play for myself, but I represented him, especially when I was with the Cardinals organization that anything that I did good or bad was a reflection on him. And I, I kind of reverse engineered that, that even in college, you know, I was a reflection of him and he would come to the games and he would put on his dad hat, but he also had to put on a scout hat too. And so I, I always knew that in the back of my mind and, and I, tried my best to make sure that you know he wasn't let down or, or he walked away disappointed well your junior year you roll in you've had this great sophomore year you know started and kind of established yourself your junior year at least on the stats things kind of go backwards a little bit was it health it was related? A was yeah. it different things you were doing performance wise what what kind of went into that uh it was an absolute disaster and um i didn't get sent to summer ball i got sent to go do some some training in the summertime i, I didn't particularly care for the situation uh, so I came home and, and just got my work in. And then in the fall, uh, the the head coach and pitch coach at the time, he, he tried to change me a little bit. He said, you know, I want you to throw harder and throw more of a curveball rather than a slider. And I'm a low slotted, low three-quarter sinker slider kid. And he and he wanted me to do you know more forcing curveball and start to throw harder. And my shoulder just fell apart. I battled rotator cuff tendonitis for, I think I missed six weeks or so. And it was just never the same. And I ended up working for the Rays for a year. And Greg Whitworth is a scout there, and, he, and we'd always joke. He's like, "You're you are the best 0 and nine pitcher in the world." I'm like, "Hey, hey, hey! I only went 0 and seven, so b- back off a little bit." And, he's, and then every time it would get worse. He's like, "You were 0 and ten. You were the best 0 and ten pitcher." Um, so yeah, it was a bad year. And so thankfully, uh, you know, scouting is a long process. And uh, Jeff Ishi, who was the area scout at the time and, and worked under my dad because he was doing the West Coast for the Cardinals, there was there was a history. I had a history of throwing strikes. I had a history of being healthy. Um, and, and the Cardinals took a flyer on me and, and things seem to work out. Okay. I want to swing this into your coaching and how you go about talking to kids because there, there's always going to be that thing or, you know, in your career, you'll have coaches come to you, try this, try that. Um, you know, something like the situation you're in, in my sophomore year, my coach asked me to, to drop down and be like a almost borderline submariner. And I didn't take to it, and a lot of it was my mentality. I didn't come into it with the right mentality, and I didn't commit fully. And in retrospect, it's something that I wish I would have put a little more work in because I kind of burned two years just being like half in with that. And I know my coach was just trying to find a way for me to be effective. 
but at you know at at the same time there's always the risk of you know a player kind of knows himself too is this going to work for me is this being a detriment am i hurt how do you communicate to players because especially at 20 you know you were what 20 21 when you had that conversation about throwing a little harder you know mixing some new things in it's tough to speak to a grown man that way when you're really i mean when you're 2021 20, like you're just a kid for all intents and purposes yeah i was like, yeah and so it's a tough thing to do how do you kind of communicate to players as far as standing up for yourself and and you know having honest conversations with the coach because i think it's a really difficult thing to do typically when i when i meet a, a pitcher for the first time you know everyone has someone they work with and I, and I asked him straight up, I said, what is something that every week that you go to your pitching coach, whoever that may be, there's, you know, there's good ones and bad ones there. Everyone has different philosophies. There's, and a lot of the time, good pitching coaches, they relay the same type of information, just in a different, different way. They use uh, a different vernacular. And so I, I asked the kids, what is something you want to improve on? What do you want to get better at? You know, and I look at grips and, and I make suggestions, but I don't, I don't, coach with an iron fist because I never responded well to, to people that did that to me. So I'm, I'm one to really to pat a kid on the shoulder and say, Hey, you weren't very good today, but let's, this is how I think we can, we can try and get better next time out. Um, this, and I'll give them a little bit of homework in between. And, and that's how I've always been. And that's how I responded positively to people in my life too. Well, let's move this back. You mentioned the Cardinals took a flyer on you. What was, what was the the draft day experience after coming off an zero and seven season? Did you you know did you even did you throw a number out? Um, what did you have conversations with other teams? What was kind of that wait from round one to round fifteen? I didn't have an agent at the time, or sorry, an advisor, whatever you want to call it. Uh, my dad was was pretty well versed in the industry, and and he had fielded some calls for me. There was probably four or five teams because I ended up throwing right before the draft for the Santa Barbara Foresters. Um, and I and I got back to full health. I threw strikes. I, I had one of the best five inning starts in my entire life, to be honest. So, and there was a handful of guys that went and saw me. So there was a, again some some teams were involved. And I, to be honest, like coming out of high school, my dad called me. And I think the forty something round. I said, "Hey, do you want me to draft you?" I said, "No, I don't want to be that kid. I'm not. I've never been that way. I don't want to be that kid." And he said, "Okay, you know, no problem." And then. Uh, Starting in probably round seven or so, I started paying a little bit more attention. I, you know, I, I was pretty realistic. I wasn't going to the top five rounds. And then, you know, six, seven, eight, nine. And then right before the 15th round started, uh, the MLB people announced it and saying, hey, after the 15th round, we're going to take a 10-minute break, as they usually do. So in the back of my mind, like, okay, this has got to happen here. And um, I don't know if this is exactly the story, but this is the story I was told that my dad was was in the in the draft room with the Cardinals and, and the Braves called him and said, hey, we're going to take Chucky in the 16th round. Uh, is that okay? You know, we're going to, I think I was asking for like $75,000 or something like that. Not, not a not a, an, an absorbent amount of money at all. So he comes back into the room and uh, the whole room starts clapping for him. And, and Jeff Luna was like, hey, we just took Chucky in the 15th. And that's how my career started. And I, I was sitting with my mom at the computer and I hugged her and cried. And like, I was obviously very happy, very, you know, happy to be a Cardinal because of such a great organization. But I was again, that kid potentially. And, and if you Google my name, there's a picture of me that, with a little bubble that says, thanks dad. And um, there was an article written about me the next day about, you know, how I didn't have a very good year. And there was the word nepotism thrown around. And in the long run, I, I think I won out and, the day I made my debut, that that writer approached me and said, "Hey, you know, congratulations, well done." 
we we love a uh, people like people having to eat crow. That yeah, and again, like I, I shook his hand and looked him in the eye and said, "Hey, I, I get it. That that was a a good story to write because it was true." But that on the surface, it all looked like a bad pick. It all looked like they just took the scout's son way too high in the draft. But um, you know, if if you had seen me throw the year before, if you'd seen me throw the week prior to the draft, it would have been a different conversation. But he didn't, and I understood that and. Always in the back of my mind, I you know I kind of had it out for a guy, and we made amends. And I talked to him to this day on on Twitter, and he's a good man, a good writer. But it was it was a good story for him to write too. And as a guy who's kind of a you know you shot yourself straight, you were kind of realistic with with who you were as a pitcher. What did you and and you had you know your dad to lean on and ask if you really need some honest opinion? How did you see yourself getting to the big leagues? Like what did you think? your path was your, you know, your niche, like what kind of pitcher did you think you could be to, to get up the system? We all want to be starters. Uh, like I think Andrew Chafin wears a shirt that says a failed, you know, failed starter. And he's a bullpen guy. Now, when I got there, I thought I was going to be, you know, one of the guys in the five man rotation and they put, they stuck me in the bullpen and I'd never really pitched out of the bullpen before. So it was a, a, a weird transition for me. And then I'd go up and if you kind of look back to my career, I'd, I'd make a you know handful of starts throughout the year and then get put in the bullpen. And that's how I survived. I, I explained to people that there's 12 pitchers on a team and it coming out of spring training, I was always number 12. I was maybe number 11. And throughout the year, uh, whether it be through guys being promoted, demoted, released, um, whatever it be through attrition, I kind of positioned myself over the course of a six month season. And that's how I, I, kind of held on and, and kept throwing strikes and stayed healthy. And, and I, and I kind of faked it till I made it. Well, your numbers, when you jump out, they're good, both in the, the year you get drafted at the, in the, in the Appy league and in the Midwest league. And then in 2008, in 2008, you go to the Midwest league again. What jumped out to you is the, the kind of the challenges from your, your first couple years in pro ball. Cause the, the numbers are even better than they were in college, but where were the adjustments needed to be made? What did you see as the biggest struggle? I love Pro Bowl, especially the low minors. I mean, you're facing a lot of uh, younger, uh, undisciplined hitters. I, I felt it was easier than, than college at the time because college, we were still using the, the BESR bat, not the BB core they're using today. And so the ball jumped a lot more uh, back in 2006, 2007. So getting to Pro Bowl, I mean, getting on guys' hands, breaking bats, and I, I found it a lot easier. And, you know, I had, I finally had some defense behind me that, these guys were given a lot of money to catch and throw the ball behind me. And I had never really had that type of support as a pitcher being a ground ball guy. So the transition to me was, was quite easy to be honest. And you said you signed for, for 75,000. Oh no, no, I got 35, $35,000. Okay. So I got it. You know, what was the, uh, in that, those low minors, what was the living situation? How are you stretching finances? Got to hear the, got to hear the, the good stuff regarding the minor league lifestyle. My parents helped me the first couple of years. They, I mean, I don't think I paid a cell phone bill until I was 24 or 25. Um, they allowed me to live at home if it, I had their credit card. If some, you know, a big expenditure came up, whether it be buying sheets, pillows, you know, laundry detergent, whatever, they, they allowed, they said, hey, you know, we trust you. You use this as you need to. And I maybe put, you know, a couple hundred bucks on a month. It wasn't anything crazy at all. But uh, again, again uh, I don't know how I would have done it without them. I really don't. Yeah, I mean it's it's dire. There was a the day we're recording, a, a story dropped about how players playing for uh, for I guess it's now Low A Stockton are their their team hotel that they have to stay in cost more than they're they're getting paid, which is I, I which think is something. 
I think my first paycheck in the Appalachian League, and again, I was living in the team hotel at the time. Um, so they, they automatically took that money out of the check. I think my first paycheck was like $374, something like that for two weeks of pay. That is, uh, that is not a lot to live on. No. Folks. And I, and thankfully I really, really like PB and J I'm 35 years old now and I, I got two little kids and I make a PB and J and I end up eating half of it and I still to this day enjoy it. So I got lucky in that, that sense. Yeah. I mean, that's something that I've, I've come to figure out with fatherhood is if I make my kid a PB and J, I will make one too, because I'll lick the knife Oh yeah, and I'll get the, the, you know, the, the sensation of the peanut butter, pe- the peanut butter and jelly. And I'm like, I've oh, got to have it. Need, need yeah. one for myself. Never I, I ate in the clubhouse a lot. I mean, 2011, I, I, I was, I was someone that always got to the field early anyways. I slept in late and got to the field early. Uh, I just roll out of bed, take a shower and, and get my butt to the field and go make a tuna sandwich, turkey sandwich and go play cards and sit around. Um, I was one to get to the field early and, and leave late because half the time my apartment didn't have cable or internet anyway. So I might as well just go and use the Wi-Fi at the field. So I was going to ask is bullpen life, especially that's a lot of time to kill, especially in the minor leagues. You're not pitching every day. You're sitting out for a lot of the game just to get in for an inning or two. What is, what's the best bullpen activity? Like how do you, how do you keep yourself amused you know, all, all game. Were you a guy? Could you dial in for all nine innings, even if you weren't playing? Did you have to figure out something? What's kind of the, what's the best way to have fun in the bullpen? The best way to have fun is knowing your role. Um, once roles are established in a bullpen, guys know that you can, you can kind of foresee what's going to happen the next couple innings. And I, unfortunately, early in the year, I was always kind of like the 12th man in the bullpen. I was the long man. I was the guy that had to go in and, and, eat up three innings because something got blown up in the first two or three as well. And then, um, you know, as like in 2011, I, I was the setup guy in, in AAA and our closure was phenomenal too. So I knew that if the game was close in the sixth, seventh, eighth inning, I, I was in there. So I started preparing, um, you know, getting myself ready, stretching. And I was someone that worked off adrenaline and, and the days I knew, like if we were up or down a lot, I, I, I would check out and, and have fun. Um, you kind of have to pick and choose your spots because it's a it's 144 games in 150 days and you cannot be mentally checked in all the time. So, but you know, if you are checked out, I never I was always respectful of of others that they were they were preparing to do their job. Who has the best bullpen in the mi- in the minor leagues? Like, what's the best the best setup, best seating setup, best location in the stadium? Is there is there a specific one that sticks out? The Springfield Cardinals. That entire facility there is as big league as you can get the, the bullpen's phenomenal. The fans are phenomenal. Everything about the Springfield Cardinal setup is great. Um, you could walk right in and out of the clubhouse. The, the bullpen was down the, at the very end of the right field line. It was a hop, skip and a jump away from a, a beautiful clubhouse, all the snacks, Gatorade that you could ever want. Um, if I had to play in Springfield for the next 10 years, I could do it. It's awesome there. That, I mean, that is, that is high praise. High, yeah, high they do praise. a good job. Um, you mentioned off seasons living at home with your parents with, with baseball, you get, you get this few month break before going into spring training and, and best shape of your life season, <laughs> your next crack at kind of running through the system, you know, getting another go at going to the big leagues. What is the off season like for, for a guy in your shoes? Are you, you know, working for like a magic bullet trying to make some drastic change? I know, especially now it might've been different, you know, 10 or so years ago, but now it's like guys use their off seasons to develop a new pitch on, on camera, or build, you know, five miles an hour in velocity or whatever. What, what were you kind of doing each off season to be like, this is what's going to make me good enough to get to the big leagues. 
there was always just there was always just one goal and it was just to get as big and strong as possible um you know typically the minor league season you get home by september 15th i would maybe take 10 days off and i was a big i'm still a big surfer today i'd go surfing for a week or so um hang out with some friends and on day 10 or 11 i would kind of wake up and say i'm bored time to get to work uh i didn't take a lot of time off uh i and i and i always knew exactly when i was going to start throwing i threw the you know december 15th if december 15th was on a on a sunday then i threw on december 16th there was that mid-December Monday where I started my program to prepare myself for whether it be major league camp, which I only went to one time, but minor league camp, because I wanted to come in right away and, and be ready to go because I knew that I was always kind of, you know, the, the afterthought, I wasn't a bonus baby. So I, I had to come in and be good right away. So the, the off season was always just get strong. And I knew that if I, I got as strong as I possibly could, that's when my velocity would, would jump because I always had arm speed, not arm strength. So if I was able to add that component, then I, I knew I could put it together. So you start going up slow but steady. You you know you get a, a half year in the Florida State League. You make it to Double A for parts of two years. You get to Triple A. What what did like, as far as adjustments? Your your first stop in Triple A versus your second year in Triple A. You ha- you basically half your ERA. What goes into how, how do you half an ERA from one you go from a four seven eight to a two thirty? What are the what are the adjustments? Is that is that all strength? Is that physicality? Is that learning things about hitters? What kind of goes into that? It actually goes back to the year before. Um, I was in Double A and we were in a playoff race and we were in Northwest Arkansas and I had to, I had to kind of be forced into a tight you know two two ball game in in the bottom of the tenth and something clicked on me. And all of a sudden, like, my, you know, my fastball was 89-91 out of nowhere. And I come in, and the guy that was on the radar gun is like, who are you? Like, what happened to you just now? Because I, I pitched at 86 to 90 as a pro my first couple of years. My velocity never really bounced back from college. And then that one night, I, I the, the, the velo jump. And then from that offseason, my agent set me up with a trainer, and I started working out with a couple guys. And then going into that next year, I never really looked back. And once I got to AAA, I – I took my lickings, you know, pitching in Albuquerque and Reno and Vegas and places like that, um, fit facing, you know, 30 year old guys that are going up and down from the big leagues. When I went back in 2011, I, I talked myself into not allowing, not giving in to certain people at certain times. I knew that I pitched in higher leverage situations then. And so if I had, if I was too old to a left-handed hitter with two outs and a man on second base, I pitched around him. And so my walk rate almost doubled as well too. And that was almost by design. I'm not going to say, you know, I, I, I was doing the intentional, unintentional walking, but I was throwing two O sliders, three O changeups because I knew I could get that next guy out. Cause I'd gotten him out two times prior already. So I started learning lineups and not letting certain people beat me in certain situations. With minor league playoffs, you, you bring that up. What's the, the atmosphere around a clubhouse during a minor league playoff run? Because the number one purpose of the minor leagues is development over winning. It is get to the big leagues. It is not win the Texas league. What, when, when you're going through a run, that run in double a, is it, does it have that, that still got that kind of same big excitement or is it like, Hey, we win. That's great. Half of us wanted to go home and half of us wanted to stay and collect an extra paycheck and, and try and win a ring. Um, in 2008, 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011, I made the playoffs every single year. Uh, and that's that that group of us ended up being pretty good at the major league level and winning. And we were playing, we always played against the Royals, and that was 
Mike Moustakis and Eric Hosmer and Gerard Dyson and guys like that and I win a World Series too. And so I think winning in the minor leagues does breed a success at, at the major league level as well too. But, you know, when when it's September 10th and you get to collect an extra $400 paycheck, it's not really what you want to be doing. You, everyone wants to get home and go see you know, their family, their girlfriend, their dog, whatever that may be. So it was a really a split group, but you just had to bite the bullet and tell yourself like, hey, you know, we're, we're here to play a game and, and try and win it. And if so, be it. Your 2012 season is is very interesting to me. Uh, did you open the season feeling like you're knocking on the door, like you know you might be next man up? Uh, I knew I was probably third or fourth in line. I only got to throw a few innings in major league camp for whatever reason. I thought I did pretty well. If you look at my actual statistics in major league camp, I think I only gave up like two or three runs in nine or ten innings. I always held my own in major league camp. I was cut pretty early, along with Adam Ottavino and. Um, then Otto would end up being designated for assignment and claimed by the Rockies. So I'm like, okay, there's one, one gone. And Eduardo Sanchez and Brandon Dixon were on the 40 man as well too. And they had pitched the year before on the, on the world series team. So I knew there was some chips that had to fall my way. And I, I was coming off a really good year in AAA and I got off to a slow start. And if you look at statistically, like I, for whatever reason, I, I just couldn't put guys away in the books and, and my strikeouts number fell. My, my walk kind of stayed the same. Um, I battled through a little bit of mechanical issues in spring training after I got sick and, the first couple months just wasn't right. And then I had a really bad outing back-to-back outings in Tucson. And I, I, ca- I called my agent, my parents, I just said, there goes my chance. I just gave up five runs and two innings. I'm, I'm done. And my agent said, Chucky, like you've never been closer. Just keep your head up, keep going. And we flew back from Tucson that night. Uh, I didn't pitch that night. And I got, a, I got pulled aside by the pitching coach after everyone was gone. He said, Hey, let's go look at some video. And we got to the video room. He said, Hey, no, no, let's go look at it in the, in the coach's room, which never happened. So we got to the coach's room and he said, I don't know, let's go talk to pop. Like pop wants to show you something, which was very, very strange as well too. So I walk in and uh, Ron Warner, everyone called him pop. He said, Hey, you're going to the big leagues. They're going to send, send down for an Alice and don't be telling anyone. You can call your parents, let them know, but congratulations. You're going to the big leagues. And so I went from the lowest low to literally the highest high in 24 hours. It was a whirlwind. To, to, to say the least. And what's the next 24 hours like? Like, what is that? What is that? <laughs> like? I think I have a good story. So I called my dad and he didn't pick up. I called my mom. She didn't pick up. I called my girlfriend at the time. She didn't pick up. I called my dad again. He didn't pick up. And finally, my mom, I called my mom. She picked up. And I'm like, mom, I'm going to the big league. She goes, and she, you know, lost it on the phone, crying, yelling, screaming. And my dad calls me back and I was like, I got to go. I got to go tell dad I need a rental car because I, I was going to drive from Memphis to St. Louis. So I call my dad and he's in Seattle doing pro coverage because at the time he was a pro, pro scout. I said, dad, I'm going to the big leagues. He's like, what? No, you're not. And I said, no, I'm, I'm going to the big leagues. He's like, okay, well, what do you need to do? And so I said, I need a rental car. He goes, okay, okay. Did you call your mother? And I said, yeah, I talked to her, but I just had to hang up on and call you because you called me back. And that's that was how my debut story went. I called everyone and no one picked up. Um, so it was awesome. Was the drive the longest drive you've ever had or the shortest drive you've ever had? I feel like one or two ways. I should have been pulled over several times. I was cooking on whatever I-94, whatever that may be. I was going really fast. It was the shortest drive ever. And they told me it was a day game the next day. So I showed up at about 1030 and no one was there except for Adam Wainwright, who was uh, rehabbing from Tommy John and, and one trainer. And he's, and he looked at me, he's like, what are you doing here? I'm like, well, I'm here. Like, I thought we were playing a day. He goes, no, 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 we're playing a night game. But he gave me a big head, said, congratulations. So I had 
three hours to settle in and sit around the clubhouse by myself, I was exhausted because we'd flown back from Tucson the night before, uh, you know, the flights at 5 a.m. I didn't, I didn't even go to bed the night before. Then I got up at five. So I, I was running on three hours of sleep in 48 hours and I drove to Memphis and ended up making my debut that night. So what is that then from let's, let's fat, you know, let's fast forward another few hours. <laughs> what is you get to the clubhouse and no one's there. How do you even try to go about your business as you had the last few years? Um, well, my locker was next to Jaime Garcia's who's, who's, he's a great guy. And, um, Jaime's from Mexico. Fernando Salas, who was optioned down, was also from Mexico. And, and Jaime looked at me. He's like, where's Fernando? And I was, it was a really, and I said, he got, he got sent down. I, I, I replaced him. And Jaime kind of turned his shoulder. I, it wasn't against me. He was just, I think, more upset that Fernando had been sent down. And that's part of the business. And everyone came up and gra- congratulated me. And, you know, there's some couches in St. Louis. And I saw all the veteran guys sit on the couches. So I knew, you know, I'm the rookie. I'm not going to sit on the couch. And I had to bring the the, you know, the drinks out to the bullpen and that was perfectly okay with me. And then once I got to Houston, I had a pink backpack that I walked out every night to the back to the bullpen. And if that was the worst part of my day, I was doing pretty good in, in life. So let's not fast forward to Houston. We're still, we're still talking <laughs> right, to right, right. you. You're sitting in, you're sitting in the big league bullpen. What is, what's that, what's that game? Like I, I want to focus in on that because you, you've had this slow crawl up to the big, you're not, you know, you're not like, you know, you're not Crash Davis getting in there in your 30s, but it, it's been a, it's been a long grind. You've thrown a lot of innings, you've had a lot of games. What is finally like sitting in that bullpen waiting? Does it feel real? Does it? Do you feel like, is there any imposter syndrome? Like, what are you know, what are you doing through it? Are you just like staring at the third deck most of the time? Like, walk me through that. I knew I belonged. I had spent enough time in major league stadiums in my life and been around enough successful and accomplished major leaguers that I think I was pretty mentally prepared for it all. And yes, you're right. The, the third, uh, I guess the third, uh, what'd you call it? Part of the stadium, the, the highest part of the stadium, that that's definitely when the adrenaline kicks in a little bit more that, that third level. Um, and I think the phone rang in the seventh and they, and they got, they had me get up and get hot and um, my adrenaline was pumping. And then I had to sit down and I, once I ended up pitching the ninth inning, my adrenaline had almost crashed. And so, but it finally, you know, I got kicked back in the gear. And once they opened the gate and I kind of, my feet touched the, the warning track and I looked up and I couldn't feel my feet, my face, my hand, nothing. And I put my head down. And once I got onto the mound, uh, Tony Cruz, who I, we were drafted together, we played years together and he came out and he's like, all right, you good? And I said, I'm good. You know, and that was kind of it. I focused on him and uh, who was coming up in the lineup. And that was kind of it. But if, if you start to raise your head up, you're, you're going to freak yourself out a little bit. Who was the first hitter you faced? Um, Freddie Galvis. He, he lined out to, to Matt Holiday on a 1-0 fastball away. That's a good one to get. He's had a long career. And then Brian Schneider singled to right. Kyle Kendrick bunted back to me. I threw it over to first base, and then I got Jimmy Rollins to fly out to center field on a 2-1 changeup. Kyle Kendrick, victim of the cruelest prank of, yeah, of right? all time. Of all, I, I watch that video every now and then just to make myself <laughs> laugh. So we, I have a mutual friend that, uh, of Jimmy Rollins. And so I actually played j- golf with Jimmy last year and I, I was with our mutual friend and Jimmy comes rolling in. He's a little late to the tea time. And the guy yells out, Hey Jimmy, this guy said he struck you out twice. And Jimmy just starts laughing and, and he's like, who are you? And I said, I'm Chucky Fick. I'm, I'm Robert Fick's nephew. He's like, I, I know Robert. And I said, I didn't strike you out. I did get you fly out twice on uh, back to back days on changeup. He's like, I don't remember. I said, I don't expect you to. <laughs> He's he had a few at bats in the big leagues. It's tough for him yeah. to string all those together. 
he's a great guy. And so like, it's, it, that was kind of the cherry on top of my story of getting Jimmy Rollins out and then someone saying, Hey, this guy said he struck you out. And then actually, you know, getting to meet him and playing golf with him. He was great. Well, you get that outing, you get Jimmy Rollins out, potential future Hall of Famer Jimmy Rollins. Uh, did you think you'd get a chance to settle in? Like, what did you think, you know, the next, what did you think came after this? Um, I ended up pitching the next day again. I, I, I had a little bit of a struggle. We were up, you know, six, seven runs. And I think I got two outs and they brought in Mitchell Boggs to close up the game. And I was a little disappointed in myself to not, you know, close out the game for a win but it was great to be a part of a win like because we lost the night before and so to pitch in a game that the st louis cardinals won was an honor for me um and then we, we got on a plane and went to went to atlanta that night and i didn't pitch for three days in atlanta because we had all right-handed pitchers at, at the time i think in the bullpen or maybe one i think mark zipchensky was in there so and they cycled a couple of us out and so i i was in my suit on the bus we were about ready to fly to New York, and I got pulled off the bus by the traveling secretary and said, "Hey, uh, Mike Matheny wants to talk to you." And I got sent down that night. It oh, was, that's like that's almost like Lane Kiffin getting left at the airport. That's tough. It was. Uh, I'll never forget that moment when he knocked on the window and like and kind of motioned me like, "Hey, get off the bus." Whew. So then, what is the next? What What is the the next few hours like? What what is what is that? I guess what is that? You you travel back? Do you make it? Do you make it back with Memphis? Uh, so what happened? I think Brandon Dix and I both got optioned down that night, and they brought up two other guys. We got a hotel in Atlanta, and we flew out the next day back to Memphis. Um, and I felt like I, I felt like I didn't belong in Memphis because I you know obviously reached this this goal that all all young kids had done. Like I you know I reached the pinnacle of my life pretty much of making my major league debut, and then five days later gets snatched away from me. And so I get back to AAA and it took me, it took me some time to really re- readjust and, and get back mentally to where I needed to be. And I, I struggled. I really did. And when did you find out you've been DFA'd? We were in Nashville. Um, for whatever reason, I would, they, you know, Brian, they claimed Brian Fuentes and I got DFA'd and the manager said, Hey, you know, you're going to be placed on waivers and just hang out for a few days. You'll probably go unclaimed and we'll, we'll you know, come before everyone gets to the field, play catch and do your thing. And um, on the third day, I get a call and saying, Hey, you know, you've been claimed. You have a flight in three hours. We need you to be in Houston tonight. Uh, can you pitch? I said, yeah, I'm ready to go. And so I said, I don't have any red, I don't have any black cleats. All I have is red stuff. He said, don't worry about that. Just leave all your red stuff there. Uh, you're coming to Houston. Tonight. Can you pitch? I said, yeah, I'm ready to go. And so um, my roommate, his wife was in town and I had her drive me back to the field. I went and picked up all my gloves and all my supplies and, uh, I, I got a cab to the airport and I was off to Houston. That was it. So you've been a Cardinal for five plus years. In two seconds, you're with the Houston Astros in the big leagues. With the Cardinals, you know the system. You have familiar figures, coaches, guys you've played with. Who's like who's the boss when you get to Houston? What's it like? You know, is there any pitch from them about your role? Or you know, at that point, I think that's that's in the uh, it's tough sledding in Houston. Is it just like, hey man, eat these innings? I think they were, I think we lost 106 or seven games, something like that that year. And they were just pulling anyone off the scrap heap, myself included. And Jeff Luna was the GM and Jeff was the one that drafted me with the Cardinals. So there was some familiarity there. And uh, Doug Brocale was the pitching coach and he and my uncle Robert had played together for years. And so when I walked in and introduced myself, you know, and he's, he obviously knew who I was. Uh, I was Robert's nephew. And so uh, Doug Brocale and I kind of hit it off and Brad Mills was the manager and Brad's son, Bo, was at Fresno State with me, so I had a little bit of of in and Bud Norris I played against in college 
for a couple of years. And so there was, there was some familiarity there, but uh, Wesley Wright, who was a longtime master there, he was, he was phenomenal. Honestly, like I wouldn't have survived without him to, to talk, get to sit in a bullpen and talk to him every day about kind of what he went through and just the mental side of baseball. Like Wes really, really helped me out on a daily basis. What are those? I mean, I assume that's stuff that you try to pass on to your players. What are, because I, I remember Wesley Wright too, and it's always interesting, especially, you know, veterans who are kind of suffering through these seasons that are, I mean, that Astro season was probably over by the end of May, frankly. Correct. So what, you know, what are those lessons that he was able to pass on to you? Uh, his lesson was essentially like, take it day by day. Like, you know, I was kind of a superstitious guy. He was not. And he broke me of making sure like I, I didn't, it didn't matter what shirt I wore underneath or what glove I used or what pair of cleats I wore. He was just, he was so easygoing. And at my core I am too, but I never truly was able to exhale uh, in the big leagues. And so he helped me do that. And I, I mean, if he ever hears this, thanks Wes, you are awesome. Well, the, you finish out that year, you know, you, you get 18 games with the Astros, you get a little bit in triple a um, 2013, you know, sports can be bewildering a little bit stuff that fans don't see account for performance. It could have been a million factors. What was two was 2013 for you? Was it health? Was it mentality after being, you know, reaching that pinnacle, then being shuffled back down? What do you point to as 2013 not going quite as well as, as 2012 did? I, I think I was designated on Halloween. Uh, I, Jeff had left me a voicemail like, hey, give me a call. And he said, hey, you know, we're going to designate you. We're going to take you off the roster. And I finally called him back and said, hey, like, is this, how much does this really affect my chances to make the team next year? Because if you look at my numbers, yeah, I struggle a bit. But in September, I actually put together a nice September. I think I had, you know, three ERA and I, I didn't throw as many strikes as I once did. But, you know, I did the same thing. I kind of pitched around guys. I had four intentional walks. And so I, I held my own for the most part, especially against right-handed hitters. And I was a guy that was able to go multiple innings. And Jeff had just said, no, this doesn't affect you. You're going to be fine. And I, I went to major camp that next spring. And I think I threw six or seven scoreless innings. And they finally just looked at me and said, we don't have any more innings for you. You're not going to make the team. And I was kind of crushed, honestly. And I got to Oklahoma City and myself and one other guy, we were kind of the veterans in the bullpen. And so I, I took it upon myself to be the the veteran guy and guys are like Jared Kozar and, and uh, Chapman, the lefty, like they'd never really been in AAA before. And they were on the, they were knocking on the door of the big leagues um, and Asher Wojciechowski and, and a lot of these guys that were, you know, big time prospects. I kind of took it upon myself to, to pass along the knowledge that had been passed on to me. And then you get, get released by the Astros, get picked up by the, uh, by the Rockies, Rockies for a little bit. Um, after, you know, after that 2013, it's a tough year. Um, probably I would say, I mean, statistically probably the worst year of your career. What are, how are you feeling about baseball at that point? Cause you, you know, you've, you've broken the ceiling. You have made the big leagues. What are you thinking about as far as your future in the game? I thought they were just going to write it off as, as a bad year. And, you know, I wouldn't have any problem, you know, signing a minor league free agent deal with someone and, uh, my agent at the time just said, Hey, we're trying and no one, no one wants you. Um, and, you know, looking back and, you know, I was, I was a Joe right-hander. I was 88 to 91, 92 with a little slide sinker slider. I was just like everybody else, but I thought that maybe having a little bit of success in the big leagues, you know, a, a very little bit, but some at least, um, would at least garner some attention and it just wasn't there. Um, so I, I kind of rerouted and I went and played, played winter ball and I ended up going to Mexico and then, that was kind of it. 
That that was not it because I've I've talked to guys who've played in Mexico. I've talked to guys who played in Germany, Australia, Venezuela, Puerto Rico. I've never talked to anyone who played in China. How did how did playing in China come about? Taiwan. It was awesome. Oh, is it, so okay. So I it's so the, you it's play the in CPBL. Ta- yeah, okay. CPBL is a Chinese professional baseball league, but it's actually Taiwan. Okay, that is news to me. I you learn something new every day. I probably should have known that. I played on the same team as Manny Ramirez did the the EDA Rhinos. Oh. Okay, but like best Manny story, go. <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't on the team with him, but he had been there the year prior. Um, so we all kind of got put up in, in dorms, essentially. And it, this place is called Eda World. There was a golf course. There was an amusement park. There was this massive three- or four-story mall that, you know, any type of food that you wanted. So we lived in Eda World. And every day the bus would, would take the entire team from Eda World to the stadium. And that was our home games. And then... Um, I was only there a couple weeks, so they kind of gave me about 10 days to acclimate with the time change and the humidity, which was awful. And then I made three starts and a guy they had the year before he was pitching in Korea, he got released in Korea and they said, Hey, you know, like of the three Americans, you we don't like you the most. We're sending you home. And I had signed a three month deal. They, they handed me my money. I went home and I was kind of struggling. Like I've had, I had nerve issues in my hand from throwing balls for years. Like you know, still to this day, like my, my two fingers are kind of messed up from my ulnar nerve. Um, and I got home, I was 30 years old. I called my agent. I said, I, I think I'm done with this. I I'm good. And I called my parents. I called my agent. I told my wife at the time, I said, you know, I, I know when to walk away. I'm 30. I, you know, I wasn't supposed to make it this far. I, I, I'm pretty objective about myself. And so I patted myself on the back and let everyone know. And that was it. That's, that's a very like interesting end to your, like living in a mall. That's, uh, yeah, that's, that's wild. Well, you, you know, you hang it up. If you could go back, talk to yourself the day you got drafted, what is, what is that message? And then in the, in the same way, I guess when you have players that you've coached heading into division one or heading into pro bowl, I, I would assume heading into college ball, the, the pep talk is a little different than heading into pro ball. But if you could talk to yourself and then talk to your players, what does that conversation kind of go like? I, I mean, Honestly, if I were to talk to myself on draft day, I'd say do the exact same thing. I think from from my body type, the stuff that I had, I think I was able to essentially maximize every every little bit of it. And so I'm, I'm sure you talked to a lot more guys than I do, but I, I have no regrets whatsoever with my, with my career. None at all. Um, and that's why I think coaching is so fun for me because I don't have any any bitterness towards the game at all. And I just want to help kids. And if, I, if they can take, you know, a one-liner for me or, you know, a conditioning tip or a breaking ball or how to throw their sinker better, whatever that may be. Like, I feel like I'm, I'm giving back to the game and, and helping make the game better long-term. And it, it's something I, and I think this is how we, how we connected. Cause I think I'd, I'd reach out to you after something. It was about, it was post draft. There was a, a, um, a, another, a baseball publication had posted a thing about why it's good to go to college, you know, cause showing draft results and stuff like that. When you, when you work with these kids as high schoolers and you're talking to them, about you know decisions and that may be one college or another that may be college or pro ball and as someone who you know you went to college but you also you you know you moved on after your first choice and with how things have moved like we were talking about earlier and that kids are now committing when they're 14 15 that that school might not still be there when they're 17 18 at least with that same firm commitment to them that you know when they were 15 how do you advise kids when it comes to making choices like that and, and, you know, with those commitments, especially with how early they're coming? 
the, this one line I tell all the kids, and th- this was told by a college coach to me, I, I say this to everyone. I said, if you go to, if you pick whatever school you decide to go on, if you go there and never play one inning of baseball, you never throw a pitch, you never get one at bat, are you going to be happy with being there for four years? That's, that's what I tell all the kids. Because if someone had said that to me when choosing Fresno State, I would have told you, absolutely not. I don't want to go to Fresno State. I don't want to live there for four years and never play baseball. Because I went there to play baseball, not to go to college. And I only threw eight innings as a freshman. And I was miserable because I didn't get to play baseball. All I did was watch baseball. And it was fun because Matt Garza was our Friday guy and Doug Fister was our Sunday guy. So watching them carve through the, the whack was pretty awesome. But, you know, you go to play college baseball to play, not to watch. That is exactly what I would pass on as well. Um, yep. With without a doubt, without a doubt, I've got a little rapid fire for you, and then I'll let you get Go out ahead. of here. Favorite minor league ballpark? Springfield Cardinals, or or the uh, the Quasi River Bands. Both of them are beautiful. They were home home fields for me. Great places, great facilities, um, and the people that run those teams are first class. Least favorite minor league ballpark? I've got a guess. Um, who? Bluefield or Bluefield, West Virginia, the Orioles, and then Prince, Princeton Rays, both those. Yeah, but the, the the Appy League that makes sense. Yeah, those. I was gonna guess uh, Colorado Springs. Oh, from a from a pitching standpoint, yes, that place is my nightmare. Nightmare bus ride story. Um, not a whole lot, honestly. I I like the bus. I have no. I, I would rather ride the bus than fly on the planes in AAA. I'll tell you that. Really, I always thought that the grass was always green on the other side. Give me eight hours in the bus, no problem. I'm good with it. Okay, so what is what's the secret to surviving a bus ride? Because not not age shaming you, but uh, you did a lot of your bus rides before smartphones and before. Oh no, I had I had a smartphone. I think we were playing a lot of Snake, um, and I think my second year I finally got an iPhone. But I I had really close friends on the team, and and we would just shoot the breeze about this, that, whatever else. and still to this day, I, I talked to a lot of them. We're still friends. We, we shoot stuff to each other on Instagram. Um, th- friends, honestly, they're lifelong friends for me because you, once you, when you go through things like, you know, tough times, struggles, whatever you want to call it, we had fun. So I loved it. What is the best thing you ate in Taiwan? Um, there was a little hibachi place in the mall there that was $9 and 50 cents. And it was like going to a teppanyaki place where they do the, the, you know, the, the, uh, the onion train and all that stuff and the onion volcano. Yeah, they do for all that stuff. Nine fifty. That's a for nine fifty. Yep. So I eat there, and then there was this other place that you get a, a pork katsu bowl that was I think six fifty or something like that, and I crush those two places on a daily basis almost. That sounds absolutely fantastic. I love I love all Asian food, so it was a great it was a match made in heaven for me. That that is something I need to experience, Chucky Fick. That's all I've got for you. Thanks so much for coming on from Phenom to the Farm. Thanks, Kyle. And that's it for today's episode of From Phenom to the Farm. Huge thanks to Chucky Fick for stopping by. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. If you're on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating and a review. Those do help the podcast. Make sure you subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com for all amateur baseball and prospect news. Episodes of From Phenom to the Farm drop every other Tuesday, so we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>